0: You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHB, and I'm Jim Allison, your host. I'm very pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we welcome Sheila Kennedy. Sheila is Professor of Law and Policy in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, SPIA at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Thanks very much for being here today, Professor Kennedy.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's talk a little bit first about the Trump administration and SCOTUS. It's been quite a contentious election with multiple losing claims by the Trump administration. And recently SCOTUS ruled on the Texas case where 18 states, including Indiana, signed on along with 126 members of the House GOP Scotus rejected that case for lack of standing. What did you think about that?
1: Well, it was always going to reject that case and it and it did lack standing. The Constitution requires that in order to have a case or controversy that is able to be adjudicated by a court, you have to have uh, a genuine interest in the outcome of that case. in other words, one party has to show. That they have been damaged by the allegations they are making. So in this case, because the Constitution gives each state uh, the authority to manage its own election, uh, the it was never going to be uh, a case that the court would take because it is impossible to demonstrate, for example, that Indiana was harmed because Georgia allowed people to vote by mail. I mean it. It was a ludicrous effort to begin with, uh, and lawyers laughed. I mean, because it, as one said, it was really a press release with a filing fee.
0: A very good way to put it, I think. <laughs> so you agree that that was correctly decided, I gather.
1: It was um, correct, and it was unanimous. I would. Yeah, point
0: yeah, out. unanimous, right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Barrett confirmation and originalism. Last fall, uh, Amy Coney Barrett sailed right through confirmation proceedings for a place on the Supreme Court. And during those confirmation hearings, she often said that she was an originalist. Can you explain what she meant by this?
1: Well, I think I know what she meant by it. I would take, uh, I would say, I don't think she sailed through. It was a party line vote, but uh Her version of originalism is, uh, as she has said, uh, the same one embraced or really invented by Justice Scalia, which asserts that uh, in order to be uh, consistent with the Constitution, you have to look at the world as it existed at the time the Constitution was drafted. Uh, That sort of uh, rigid uh, original intent. Uh, simply doesn't work in real life. And Scalia himself simply ignored it when the case didn't uh, allow him to pontificate about it. But I think a, a great example is a question I s- sometimes asked undergraduates. What do you think James Madison thought about porn on the internet? Uh, and typically the answer is a laugh. And well, I guess James Madison didn't think about porn on the internet. Uh, And he certainly did not. He could not have contemplated the Internet. Uh, But what he did think about, and Jefferson and others thought about a lot, was keeping government from censoring communication between citizens. And so the the kind of originalism that I think most real lawyers uh, espouse is looking to see what is the value that the founders were trying to protect. In in the First Amendment, they were trying to protect uh, the state from being uh, invaded by the church and the church being invaded by the state. And they were trying to protect the ability of an individual to form his or her own conclusions by accessing information, sharing positions, in other words, freedom of speech. And so when the court gets a case that involves the internet or something else you look to see what what sort of ruling will continue to protect that very important value that is the kind of originalism that allows us to have what many call a living constitution
0: I see let's dig a little bit deeper let me quote from your blog. You quote Chief Justice John Marshall as saying, quote, we must never forget that it is a constitution we are expounding, a constitution meant to be adapted and endured for ages to come. So how would you say that Marshall's quote stands up to uh, an original position like Barrett's? Hasn't, well, think- and had, hasn't Scott a sort of in a way repeatedly rejected originalism?
1: you know, first, in order to reject something, you have to be able to identify and define it. And everybody has their own uh, their own version of originalism. I've just shared mine. But uh, the Chief Justice's uh, comment, which has been echoed by many public administration uh, scholars, is we have to run a constitution. We have to We have to operationalize. I hate to use that term, but we have to operationalize it. So we have to make sure that uh, the laws that we are trying to protect uh, adapt to the time. Another great example, there was probably 10 years ago now, there was a new piece of technology that allowed police officers to to, uh, stand across the street from a home and tell if you were growing pot in your basement. And the question was, for purposes of the Fourth Amendment, is that a search? Well, at the time the Constitution was drafted, the only way to conduct a search was through trespass on the property. Now, the court, I think, correctly said uh, it is a search, and it still requires a warrant. But those are the kinds of examples of why the sort of originalism that Barrett purports to hold is dumb i'm sorry i see i see okay
0: well well, let me ask you this how do you think most people view the constitution do you think they most people view the constitution as barrett does
1: i don't think most people would know the constitution if they fell over it uh certainly my students come to me from uh with an absolute innocence of civics uh I had a student, uh, an undergraduate student, that I asked that question to, what do you think James Madison thought about porn on the Internet? And she looked at me and said, who's James Madison? <laughs> uh, and I did go home and drink. Uh, but the, uh, the problem is there are, there are uh, every so often national surveys. The last time there was a national survey asking the population questions about the Constitution, 26% of Americans knew we had three branches of government. I mean, our civic intellect, our civic knowledge is so bad. Uh, I mean, if you go out on the street and ask people about freedom of speech, very few of them know that what what the First Amendment prohibits is government censorship. Not the refusal of Walmart to carry their favorite book or, or magazine. It, we are doing a terrible job of educating young people about the most basic elements of our constitutional system. And th- th- which is why, by the way, af- about t- 12 years ago, I started the Center for Civic Literacy at IUPUI, which is an effort to research how we might turn that situation around, what we actually know about the teaching of civics, uh, and you know what kinds of tools we might uh, engender to allow teachers to transmit really basic knowledge of our legal system.
0: Okay, well, after we've had that drink, what else could we do maybe <laughs> to improve people's understanding of the document?
1: <laughs> well, One of the we we need to really uh, start supporting public education far more than we have been. But one of the things we need to do is get off this constant fad approach to what we teach our children. We need to reinvigorate civics education in the public schools. We need to uh, certainly we should teach STEM and we should test and do that we have gone you know there are too many people who think that the education system is simply to give kids tools to compete in a global economy well it is we do need to do that i'm certainly not against that but we it, education and job training are not the same thing and we need to prepare students to live in a multicultural democratic society and you can't do that If you don't know what your elected officials are supposed to do or what rules they're supposed to obey. So I'm sorry, I get on a, I get on a little bit of a soap opera thing on that.
0: I'm old school too. So you're forgiven. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about religious freedom and liberty issues. Recently, the court granted an injunction, which said that to limit attendance at religious services is to likely, very likely violate the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. What do you think about this case and how it might it impact public health?
1: Okay, first of all, I didn't read the factual background of the case. So here's, here's the thing. If, in fact, a government official makes rules to protect the public health, which he, he or she definitely has the right to do, uh, and then exempts religious institutions from the application of those rules, that's wrong. The government has no obligation to be nicer (laughs) to religious organizations than anyone else. If however, uh, that case presented facts, which it may have, I do not know, that showed that uh, special uh, rules were being applied to religious organizations, then that response or that decision would be correct. So I can't speak to that particular decision. But in the United States, under the First Amendment, religious freedom does not mean that you have the freedom to uh, use the law to make me behave the way your God says I should behave. What it means is that you are free to believe anything and in many cases, free to observe, not all, as as Scalia himself found uh, in a very famous case back back in the day, uh, laws of general application do not, uh, religious belief does not exempt you from laws of general application. You know, we have laws against uh, killing your kids, which I came very close in some cases, but at any rate, but you just because you believe that your God wants you to sacrifice your baby does not allow you to ignore that law of general application. So so long as people are trying to keep us safe from a deadly disease by issuing rules that apply across the board, the government has every right and obligation to do that and, and needs to do that in order to save lives.
0: Let's bring this down to the gay marriage case. So recently, Thomas and Alito issued a statement on the gay marriage case that you called, quote, a profoundly damaging legal error as religious freedom is not the right to impose some people's beliefs on other citizens. So where do you think the court is headed generally on religious freedom and liberty right now?
1: I'm, I'm worried, to be honest. Um... When uh, the people who were uh, supportive of Barrett's confirmation uh, made it very clear they were supportive because they considered her uh, a religious zealot, for lack of a better term. Uh, I was encouraged by the fact that the court refused uh, Indiana's request to overturn two lower court decisions uh, that would have kept uh, the uh, a lesbian couple who used artificial insemination from both being on the uh, child's birth certificate, his parents. And that, again, was a unanimous refusal. Uh, I don't expect that to last. I'm quite candidly very concerned about a court that seems to want to to call religious privilege, religious freedom because the two are not the same thing.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about about voting rights. Uh, SCOTUS has decimated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, of course. And given recent voter suppression efforts, where do you think we are right now in terms of voting rights?
1: Well, we're, we're not in a good place. And part of that comes from the fact that we are now seeing after 200-plus years under what is, I think, the oldest constitution in the world right now, it, that some of some of that constitution and some of the norms that have grown up around it are rusty, to put it mildly. We need to have, I believe, a, a national uh, bureau, nonpartisan or bipartisan, however, to administer federal elections and make sure that everyone has the not only the right to vote but unlike today, where Indiana, for example, has the shortest day uh, poll opening in the country where I think the other there 's one other state, and I think it 's Kentucky, which is not surprising uh, you know we need to have rules that Uh, The polls are open the same amount of time in each state, that the uh, requirements for registration are the same. Uh, I personally favor vote by mail as uh, when you take a look at Oregon or Washington state, uh, Colorado. Now, states that have gone entirely vote by mail have much better turnout and people can cast more informed votes. They get their ballot they can look to see what does candidate A believe, that sort of thing. But we definitely need to address a number of structural issues. The electoral college, which nobody else in the world has an electoral college. Uh, The uh, winner-take-all rules in states to allocate those electoral votes. There I, I have lists of things that we really need to address.
0: Well, let's see if we can bring Congress into this. Uh, you're right. States pretty much run elections the way they want to, but Article One does give Congress the power to override state legislatures in their conduct of elections yeah. for senators and representatives. This is this perhaps a likely way to achieve electoral reforms, the kind that you have in mind?
1: It would be, depending on who wins the elections. Yeah. I, Congress can do an enormous amount of uh, good, but right now we are, uh, in the United States, we are ruled by a minority. I mean, uh, as populations have shifted, uh, I think in the next few years, I've seen uh, suggestions that, you know, every state gets two senators, but uh, something like 18 senators Will represent seventy percent of the population and uh, I mean, it's very disproportionate uh when you add in the the game playing that occurs in states uh where votes are suppressed and and uh, cities are particularly targeted uh, we are now ruled by. I'm a minority uh, of the population, and that, that's just not healthy.
0: Indeed. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank, and thank you to the, the listening audience for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters of Bloomington-Monroe County. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and to engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. I hope you listen to us in January 2021 to to join us when we talk then about misinformation and disinformation with Professor Betsy Grabi of the Indiana University Media School.